Jesus changed everything. Our death changed because of Christ. Our human beings were hopeless. Prior to Christ, there was a hopelessness in humanity. We will all die, and that was the end. But post-resurrection, when Christ died, defeats death, and you know, resurrects and ascends into heaven, death no longer has that hopelessness. Death is just another phase that you go through. If you're in Christ, and then you have your real, true, eternal life that you will live forever. That changed everything. That changed not only individually, yourself as a believer, when you know that you're going to face death one day, you know that you will also rise up and be with Christ, but also those around you. It takes the hopelessness from them because it makes death not as hopeless when a relative of yours, a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife dies and they're in Christ, you know that you will see them again, Amen. that they're in a better place, that their suffering is no longer there, that they're going to be conscious and alive, even more alive than they were when they were here. It takes away not only your hopelessness, but it spreads out into everybody else around you. I think Melissa a couple of weeks ago talked about she went to a funeral of somebody who, people who were not Christian. And she noticed the difference, the hopelessness, the finality of it, as opposed to those who are in the faith. There is no finality when death comes. There's more. So, so, the incarnation changed everything. It changed humanity. It changed our relationships. It changed all things. It changed the family. It changed marriage. It changed everything. And so today, we're continuing on this whole idea of the battle for the f uh, family. As we all know, the, the world, or at least the Western world, is going through transitions. Our culture is changing. It's transitioning becoming post-Christian. The world, geopolitically and everything, is also shifting. It's becoming more multipolar. And you see these effects happening, and you see wars and conflicts that broke, you know, rise up as a result of this. And you also see even conflicts when it comes to cultures. You know, many cultures, more traditional cultures around the world, are starting to sort of kick back against most of this Western influence that they're getting that is coming in. And so we're seeing that uh, that the so-called collective West or the Western world has adopted a completely anti-biblical and anti-family cultural worldview, which has through media and finance programs and curriculums sort of try to impose upon the world, especially in more traditional cultures. And it has been incredibly successful here, obviously in the United States, um, where not only in public schools, but also the, entire, the entirety of academia, basically, has been acculturated into this worldview. And other cultures as well. Um, this is shown in the form, like things like gender ideology. You may not know what, what that is specifically, but gender ideology has become sort of part of the curriculums and it's been pushed <coughs> in places like Argentina and other countries like in Puerto Rico and Colombia, et cetera, all these curriculums finance, usually through uh, European or American organizations, uh, is being pushed, things like abortion, et cetera, and abortion uh, programs, et cetera. Um, and this is just part of our culture. It has become part of what identifies, quote-unquote, Western culture has been all these things. And so today, we're going to uh, sort of take a little bit of historical view of how this came about. You trace down these ideas, and you will begin to notice that if you take them back to their roots, their roots are not biblical. And when you build in anything but the Bible, we all know you're building in sand. Once you let the Bible put it aside and you build anything on any other thing, on a human philosophy, then these things are built in sand. And so what happened was 
you know, the, the, the things that we see on TV today, the rappers now wearing skirts, that's a new one, rappers wearing skirts in magazines. When we see all these things, we have to trace it back to their roots. And their roots began all the way back in the 50s. In the 50s, we have a movement which we called feminism. Now that is a complicated, complicated uh, word because feminism can be many things. Originally, feminism had a legit claim. Women couldn't own property in certain places and they were second class citizens. And a lot of the women, particularly in the 1800s, that make this claim were women who were Sunday school teachers, some of them. And they made claims based on scripture, like women are created in the image of God and things like that. They have equal value, etc. When we get to the 50s and 60s, we have a different breed of women. These were women that were not Christian. These were women who uh, were influenced by French philosophers, ex existentialism and other philosophies. And they began building upon those philosophies the movements that gave rise to what we see today. And it began, see the interesting thing, the devil never shows you the whole tree. He just gives you the seed. And then he just waters it, sits back, and then it'll grow into the whole tree that he wanted. He doesn't give you the whole thing right off the bat. Um, it began with the idea of something they call the patriarchy, meaning the world is governed by men for the purpose of oppressing women so they can be, live better lives at the expense of women. That was the idea. The patriarchy has several institutions that enforce this. The government, obviously the church, and the family. The family became the main place where the patriarchy oppresses women. In other words, marriage was made, designed by men, as a means of carrying out this oppression. This is how it began, this idea. Now, it's not very hard, obviously, if you're going to make an argument that is false and you want somebody to buy into it, you have to tie it to reality. So it, doesn't, it wasn't very hard to show examples, right, of male brutality against women. That's not very hard. Then you can use these examples then to support your argument to make the argument stick. And so they will point to human history. They will point and say, look at human history. Look at how uh, women were delegated to the domestic life and have children where men got to go out and live these great, amazing lives. And women were sort of in bondage to the home, etc. So that was more or less the argument. You find this, this 50s and 60s, any, you know, feminist literature will show you this. The problem with that is that that's true, but not true, because history is not easy. It's complicated. It's not black and white. There's a lot of gray. And the reason why, you have to ask, all throughout the world, all civilizations and just about all cultures, even those who didn't even interact with each other, had more or less the same sort of arrangement. So either men communicated somehow with each other. Don't know how that happened. Men don't communicate in the same room, but somehow across the world we all planned the same system of oppression. Or maybe this was a reality that has to do with our survival. See, human beings had to survive. And conditions in ancient times were very harsh. And so people arranged themselves the best way they could, if not by design, at least by necessity, in order to carry on humanity forward. Because we have to reproduce. Because if we don't reproduce, then we die and we don't exist anymore. And so civilizations had to carry on forward. They had to. You want this tribe or village or whatever you have to be here in 50 years, we have to reproduce. If not, the other tribe's gonna come in and kill us and take, you know, we have to carry this thing forward. So 
This is going to be a controversial statement. Women bear babies. It's crazy talk nowadays, okay? Women have children. They bear children. Men don't. I'm canceled, right? Ancient civilizations, back in the ancient times prior to 2015, all believed that there was two genders, and women were the birthing people, and men didn't. Okay, they were crazy people back then. But for that reason, it became an interest in this civilization to try as much as they could to keep the women away from the edges where they could be invaded, or they could be killed, or men will come in to take over. They were sort of kept inside around the home to raise and give birth to children. That's how civilization was, because we need to reproduce. We need to survive. So the result of that was not that women's lives were simple. Domestic life was very hard. Infant mortality was very high. Even mortality in women giving birth was really high. And so as a result of that, we have to do something with the men. So the men had to go outside, protect the turf, build whatever they had to do, and then women were delegated to the domestic life. That's how civilization survived. Our ancestors, everybody, that's how they survived. This resulted, obviously, civilization after civilization, the men had to go out. Now, originally, this was probably very primitive. You see this in the Bible, right? It was, uh, hey, what's your name? Jimmy, okay, here's a stick. I need you to stop that guy from coming into our home or our turf, right? So Jimmy will go out, he would die. All right, next, what's your name? Johnny, Jimmy was my brother. Well, not anymore. We don't have sticks, so go get the stick that your brother dropped, come back and defend the home turf. And probably Johnny died and other people died. But it became part of civilization to have the men sort of out and the women in to raise the children and reproduce. As a result of that, women acquired intrinsic social value. Because when a woman died, it was a tragedy. Because not only is she dying, all the successive generations that might come out of her would die with her if she were to die. You see what I mean? If a man died, you'll get another one and then another one. See what I mean? So men had to acquire social value by being useful. You had to figure some out. So you were good at fighting. If you were not good at fighting, not all men are built for fighting. We come in a diversity of, way of uh, types, you haven't noticed? Some men maybe could build things or something. Some men were slick, they were like, whoa, 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 I can't fight, but I can, I can write this whole battle you're having, so that way our children could read it, hear me out, and be inspired. That's it, that's, I could do that. And so he became like the historian of the village. All he was doing is getting out of fighting, but he became the historian of the village, right? So men became very adept at doing things, building things, getting out of work. This is gonna sound shocking, men are lazy. Men are always trying to put out the same amount of stuff with half of the effort. It used to be to water down some like, uh, whatever, water down uh, crops or whatever. You had to take some buckets and you had to walk down to the river and you had to come back and then Somewhere along the way, some dude was like, this is not going to happen. This is tiring. My back is breaking. I'm going to have to get something, some pipes. So he, let's, let's do this. Let's bring the water to the crops. So let's get some pipes or something, some bamboos. And you just sit there and you just pour the water and we'll take turns. Okay, I'm going to go home. I'll come back. That guy never came back. So the other guy was just pouring water and the water would go and the irrigation was born. You see what I mean? Engineering was born. 
men have sticks to fight or they put a stone or they would, I don't want to fight with the dude right then and there, so I just shoot him for a, from afar, weaponry. Men became very adept at these things. Probably took a guy one time to go out to wash clothes in the river and he came back and he was like, I got to fill a bucket, I'm going to do this thing, I got to do something, but I'm not going down there again. So a washing machine was born, you know what I mean? Women became good at home, home remedies, midwives. Those are your early doctors. That's your early medicine. That knowledge was acquired and then passed on. And the next generation improved it and then passed it on. And women became very adept at treating people and caring for people and nurturing, which they still do today. Nurses, physicians, all these industries become dominated by women. Because God's design began to find expression in the world in order for us to survive. That's what happened. But all of this is also tarnished by sin. And so because it's tarnished by sin, the characteristics and the traits that God gave men and women, tarnished by sin, became oppressive. Because men reflect the image of God in particular ways that women don't. Women reflect the image of God in particular ways that men don't. Together, you get the whole picture. God is a father. He's not a mother. Christ is a son. He's not a daughter. God is strong. He has fortitude. He's consistent. But he's also nurturing and caring and loving and he gathers, how long would I gather you up as, as a chicken gather her hens? These are characteristics of God that are given to each of the gender to reflect his image. Well, those characteristics tarnished by sin become bad. Strength leads to brutality, hitting, oppressing, you know, uh, Men tend to be more analytical and rational. That leads to cold hardness, 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 there you go. Without the Spirit of God, men can be very cold-hearted, very uncaring about whether you are offended. Two plus two equals four. If you don't like that, I don't care. I have no care for the interests of your feelings or whatever. Men can become like that without the Spirit of God. So these traits became oppressive. And given the fact that we had to survive and knowledge is acquired and, 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 and passed on and acquired and passed on, and the world that, that originally was to protect and keep the women, right, protect us so they can bear children and raise children and multiply, and they also acquire knowledge in this domestic field, which they carried on, etc. Well, that world is building and it's building and it's building and it's building, and it's mostly men doing all these buildings. So we get to the situation as civilization grows where, yes, men ended up in positions of power. But that does not mean that men's lives were also easy. This is the mistake. Men live pretty brutal lives. If you made it past 35, you were very fortunate. Men died a lot. Men became disposable. You died a lot. They were used as cannon fodder. Even as, as you know, I was telling my wife, during World War II, Hitler had this great idea of invading Russia, which is a bad idea. And so uh, the Russian army at the time was very bad because they were mostly like an a, a impoverished nation. And he figured we just go in and we have more military might, we have more military power, just go in and take over. And Stalin, who was not a good guy, said if Hitler wants blood, he's going to get blood. And the Russians fought the Nazis back through Ukraine, all the way back to Berlin at the expense of 24 million lives. 
You think we're not going to pay a price to keep you from invading our country? We will sacrifice 24 million, mostly men, women die too, mostly men, to kick you all the way back home. Men's lives became disposable throughout history, even, even today in many ways. So men did a lot of dying. Men were slaves, often. Uh, sure, there were men who lived great lives, mostly. Most of the people who lived good lives were men in ancient times all the way through, and even today. But that doesn't mean that all men had it good. That's the other thing that they had wrong, the feminists. But they built this idea that marriage was an institution that men made to oppress women, and that has one very significant implication. That was the seed that was buried. If marriage was an institution made by men to oppress women, then it is no longer a divine institution made by God. That means the Bible lied to you. That's the seed. The seed is that the devil in the 60s went to women and said to them, did God really say that marriage is what he said it was? Because if marriage is not a divine institution, let me write this out for you. If marriage is a, well, I cannot write this out for you. If marriage, <laughs> if marriage, if I have a wooden home, that means that all the components of the home are wood. If marriage is not a divine institution and it's made by man, therefore marriage is a social creation. It's a social construct. And if marriage is a social construct, then whatever the marriage is made of is also a social construct. 1950s to the 70s, late 80s, that's all there was. Marriage is a social construct designed by men to oppress women. 80s to 90s in academia, because if you follow the logic, well, if that's true, then what is marriage? Well, you ask the average person in 1976, what is marriage? You will get a very simple answer. Marriage is when a man marries a woman. Well, that must be also a social construct. Somebody must have made that up then. If people made up the institution, that the components of the institution then were also made up. So we can change it up. 1980s into the 90s, men and men and women and women, that could also constitute a marriage. Well, that's never been the case. Yeah, but that was made up. We can change, we can take a wooden home and we can change it up. We can put cement walls if we wanted to or whatever. So, you follow the logic, and you follow where the logic is leading, then you end up in a situation where if, therefore, the components of marriage, which is man and woman, man the oppressor, woman the oppressed, man masculine, women feminine, if that's also socially constructed, then the gender norms that made up those compositions are also socially constructed. So what is a woman? What is a man? Those things are also socially constructed. They must be. See, if you follow the logic, you have a logical argument built upon a false premise. But if you buy into the premise, then you see you can follow logically. So what do we do with this thing? Called marriage. Number one, if marriage is an oppressive institution, the first thing that we must do is to get women out of it, the ones that are in them, or to stop the ones that are not in it to get into them. Now, it was very hard in the 70s and 80s to convince young women to not get married, because back then women are still like dreaming about the white wedding dress and all that stuff when they were young. That most of it has gone away by now. But they did this through media. Remember, it, it takes years to filter down into the culture. It starts in academia, and then years it filters down into the culture. So they started with media, but they also started with the legal system. 
it used to be very hard to get out of a marriage. So let us facilitate getting out of marriage. So divorce became very simple, very streamlined. And it could be started, you know, no fault divorce, it could be started at any time. The idea was to take women out of this system. And so the home builder that the Bible tells us about, the wise woman who builds her house, became the home breaker or home destroyer because they facilitated and incentivized them. Now, this was not necessarily individual women. This was a system that was put in place to facilitate and incentivize that, the result of which has been fatherlessness 40, 50 years later. The other thing that was done, also through the media, we saw families portrayed differently. And families, if you watch the shows, the sitcoms, the father is typically very dumb. You know, he's like stumbling around. The wife is very smart and savvy and pretty and, you know, very intelligent. And she fixes all the problems that her dumb Homer Simpson husband creates. Right? The message is simple. Listen, ladies. Why would you want this useless, ogre, disgusting thing in your life? He's dumb. He's stupid. Sure, he's funny. But look at this poor woman. Intelligent, savvy. She can have anything, but she's held down by this useless being that she has to be around with. Right? That was sort of the message that went out into the culture, 80s, 90s. And so the notion of getting married and having a family was disincentivized, and the notion of not having families was incentivized. All for the idea of women's liberation. You were stuck at home with a man telling you what to do. What you need to do is go to college, get a debt, get a career, get a job in an office. So another man who is your manager tells you what to do. Somehow this is liberation. So that's how we ended up where we are. See, it was a false premise. It used to be that getting pregnant before marriage will land you in marriage. <laughs> Back in the 60s and the 70s, if you, if, if you were a man and you got a girl pregnant, you were marrying that girl. Oh, but I don't like, eh. Eh. Your father, your grandfather, your neighbor, your mom, the entire neighborhood where you live, the entire society would tell you, you gotta marry that girl. Sorry, you made a baby. Shouldn't have made a baby. So, that puts women into the oppression. How do we fix that? Well, you can kill it. You just go and have an abortion. So that way you don't have to get into the oppression. You can get rid of the child and you can continue on living your life, having a career, whatever it is you know, that you want to do. You don't have to be held down by a baby or tied down into motherhood, because that's not a good thing. That's a social construct designed to keep you down. And so you can just abort it. But that's a human being. No, it's not. It's not a human being, so you can abort it. See, that's the point. When you take the image of God from people, then they become expendable. We've done that to babies in the womb. They're no longer people. So we can get rid of them. To a tune of 61 million children have been aborted in the United States alone since the 1960s. 61 million people. There was 40, you know what the population of Spain is? 48 million. We've ended the lives of a mid to large European country. 
That's how many people have been aborted in the United States. All at the throne of a man-made philosophy. So the life giver, who is the woman, became the life taker in our society. And the home builder, who is the woman, was incentivized to be the homebreaker. And the logical conclusions of these seed that was planted has resulted now, today, in rappers wearing skirts in the cover of magazines. That's where it comes from. Because it's a social construct. Because there is no God in heaven. Because nobody designed us as human beings. Nobody designed our traits, our expressions, our characteristics that we have as human beings. We don't have the reflection of God because there is no God in heaven. And so secular society and Christian worldview and living have now diverted completely to the point that in the future for us to be faithful Christians is going to be completely to not be Americans at all in the way that we live. Because the society, back in the 50s, you can be a heathen, but your life was basically, because this country was founded on Christian worldview, was more or less, right, sort of similar. Heathen people got married. Heathen people knew what marriage was, husband and wife. Heathen people knew that you couldn't. Those are done, those ideas. So to be a Christian is going to be more and more and more and more and more to be different from society. To not believe certain things that they believe. The institutions that make up this culture have also gone against God. Which means our way of life might become anti-institutional. And we're going to have to face whatever consequences these institutions dish out. Right now, they can cancel you. I mean, that's bad, but it doesn't, doesn't hurt yet, right? You get canceled from YouTube or Twitter or Facebook if you say the wrong thing. You could get fired if you have certain beliefs. But as time goes by, this will become more and more and more and more aggressive. Which is why this battle for the family that is raging worldwide. This is not just here. This is all throughout the world. People are fighting these battles for the traditional family. I love that. We're fighting for the traditional natural family. That's all, the only family there is. Man, woman, babies. That's, that goes back to the beginning. Man, woman, babies. And so the forces, let me, let me give you some things. I know I'm running out of time. Yeah, I think I'm running out of time. That's too much. Um, yeah, that's too much. But the, the forces that are out there um, are going after our children. Because they know a grown man like myself, grown, grown folks out here, they know it's going to be hard to get to us. But you can take a child and you can mold him or her and you can shape him how you want because children are, you know, they're children. And so now in public schools and now in, um, you know, institutions of, of education are targeting children. Cartoons are targeting children. Shows for kids because they know if we get the children, we can we can change them, we can mold them, we can make them think certain ways, make them, make them believe the reality is other than what it is. And eventually reality will come through, but we can mold them in how we want them. So families are important because of that. That's why they hate families. Because in a family, a child is nurtured, taught, and raised, and given ideas and you know, shaped, and you have a Christian family, you will produce children that have Christian worldviews, at least you should. Mm -hmm. But when you have children 
that don't have families, that are raised by a mom that has to work and she sends them off to school and the school raises your kid, that kid grows up with whatever he's given there. So they can mold him into whatever they want. And they can change him. They turn him, instead of a human being, they turn him into a consumer then. And he consumes whatever he's given. That's why there's a battle for the family. Probably the place, I have to say this, but the place that have been the most successful, honestly, is in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rican culture today is pretty much trash and mediocre. We used to have an actual culture that produced great men and women. We don't anymore. We got rappers wearing skirts and covers of magazines now. That's our culture. Because our culture was infected. Because they destroy our families. They destroyed our social order. We don't have these notions that we used to have. Even when I grew up in Puerto Rico, there were certain things, certain notions, certain ideas that if you really think about it were based on biblical worldviews. Men had to act a certain way. Women had to act a certain way. Some of that was ridiculous. Some of that was ridiculous, tarnished by sin. But it was understood. Respect. For elders, you remember that? Respect for elders? That was actually a cultural, a social imposition. Our language changed when you spoke to a, an elder person, when you spoke to a non-elder person. We don't say the same things. We don't say to a, a, a you know, if, if I were to talk to um, Gladys, I won't say to her, you know, siéntate aquí. Siéntese. Right? It's respectful, formal language. You don't talk to your mom or an elderly person like you talk to anybody else. That was ingrained. Usted tenga. Right? We lost all of that. Especially if you're like a Hispanic, you grew up in the United States, you lost all of that. Because that was part of our, who we are, based on Christian worldview. Notions of men and women, notions of family, all completely lost to a consuming media culture that has now propagated throughout the whole world. So the future is going to get, unfortunately, I'm not a prophet. I don't know. Maybe things will get good. But it seems like the future is going to get more aggressive and institutions are going to get more aggressive and schools are going to get more aggressive and universities are going to get more aggressive. And as more and more of our daughters go into universities, it's going to be predominantly daughters who go to universities. Like I said last time, men are not going to universities. It seems that, you know, it's like 70% in some places. Well, this is what they're going to get when they go to universities. So. Our daughters need to have a lot of spiritual strength and fortitude because they have to stand up against the whole system. And they're going to have to say no. Men have vulnerabilities. Women have vulnerabilities. Men have traits that are good and positive. Women have traits that are good and positive. Women can empathize more than men do. That's a good thing because kids, children don't talk. Women have intuitions. They can, they're better at social cues and, and facial cues because ch babies don't talk. You cannot say to a baby, hey, why are you crying? Well, you know, I poop earlier. And no, you got you to gotta be able to in, in tune with that. But also that creates vulnerabilities because they can manipulate you emotionally. They will come at you that way. A Christian woman has to be able to say no, even if it doesn't feel to her. She has to say no because she has to go and say, see, that's what scripture says. But look at these children, you know, they are, um, you know, they question their identity and society hates them. 
and they struggle. Some of them commit suicide because their identities are denied. Don't you feel for them? That's how they come at you. You say, that's sad. But the, the scriptures, the scriptures tell me otherwise. That yes, unfortunately, they suffer, but their lives, their practices are contrary to the word of God. That's probably why they're struggling and suffering, actually. So we're going to need daughters, strong women, who will be able to stand up against an entire, entire academia system. The same way we're going to need godly men to be able to lead godly homes. We need to put men, we need to put fathers back home. We need to put fathers back home. Because what happened with this whole idea of abortion and, you know, um, divorce and all of that is that evil, wicked men took advantage of that. Because in the old days, you couldn't do the things that men do now, right? Going around, sleep around with no consequence. Well, the consequences were taken away largely by the system that incentivizes women not to be mothers. Well, that benefits men in many ways. Because you can go around doing what you want to do, if you know what I mean, and not suffer the consequences for that. Because women can abort your child and then you don't have to raise it. And you don't have to be a father anymore. The rise of so-called baby mamas became a common thing in our culture. Men took advantage of that. Sinful, wicked men, which is basically most men. All men. More or less. And so our society crumbled. The family disappeared, faded away, and now we're suffering the consequences of it. And the only people left in this planet that are going to have to stand up for them is going to be Christian people. Nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else has that incentive. We're going to have to reshape the culture again. That's going to take a long time. That's going to take a lot of effort. But it's going to start with fathers and mothers, again, in the home, raising children, godly children, with Christian standards and worldviews. Christian standards of men and women and families are going to be the only thing fighting against what's happening in the world today. Because if we don't do that, then we can kiss our children goodbye because they're going to get our children. If we don't get our children, they will get our children. Simple as that. Because it's hard to go against, it's hard to swim against the current. So if, they, if we don't get to our children, if we don't provide examples, husband, wife, together, struggling, fighting or whatever, but making up, continuing going forward, putting forth the effort to, to you, know what, when you, you know what you say when you do that? Actions, they speak, right? You know what you say when you do that, when you fight and when you, you, you struggle in marriage, but then you come back and then you reconcile? You know what that's saying? This thing is valuable. You just don't cut it off. This, this is a valuable thing. So we got to do whatever to keep it going because this is a valuable thing. We, we, so this is what we're doing. This is what you're communicating to your children. Hey, dad and pop, they fight, but you know, they make up and then they come back. And you know, that's a valuable thing. That's a thing that they're fighting for to keep going. That means that this must not be an oppressive thing to my mom because my mom is fighting also for it. Same as my dad. This is what you're telling your daughter. You know what I'm saying? How can this be like, an, you know, he's, he's, and my dad, he, he's trying, he's putting forth the best effort and whatever. You, you're showing the value of the thing. Now you couple that up with God's commands and instructions on how to be godly husbands and godly wives, and you show and you follow that up with God's design at the beginning, and then you get a recipe for the family. 
And then you build each marriage as a covenant. Each marriage is a republic. It's a covenant before God, overseen by God himself. The maker of heaven and earth oversees the covenant. Each marriage has this sovereignty that the government cannot destroy. That's what they're trying to. It's hard to control communities of strong married people. It's very hard to do that. It's very hard. But if you destroy them, you know, the British Empire, they, um, during the 1800s, they introduced opium to China because they want to take over China. So they started shipping opium and introducing drugs to get men addicted. Because people get addicted to opium, they become drug addicts. Well, drug addicts are bad fathers and bad mothers because they wanted to control the society. So how do you control Chinese society? You destroy their family structure. Pretty simple. So they ship drugs. It's what empires do, right? But if you have the family unit together and strong, it's very hard to control those people. And communities of families will stand up against entire institutions of government. They will, every single time. You, they band together, they create communities, communities become regions, regions sometimes become nations, if need be. But those families can stand up against whatever tide comes against it. And those families honor God, and God defends them. And godly homes produce, more often than not, godly children. See, there's two ways to evangelize. You can go out and evangelize, or you can have babies that are Christians. That's, that's the... That's the two ways of doing that. You can go out to a heathen nation or a heathen people, or you can, and you can also bring forth children who are Christian. You are also spreading the word that way. And so the lie began, and it's been carried on all the way down to today. I know I'm going way over. But um, it began with a simple lie, that whatever God said was not true. That's, all, that's how it all begins, all the way in the garden and all the way today. Whatever God said about marriage, it's not true. Whatever God says about men and women, it's not true either. Whatever God says about gender and biology, is also not true. What's true is what we say is true, based on what we observe in our observations. That's the lie. That's always going to be the devil's lie. But he doesn't give you the whole tree. He just plants the little seed and he watches us grow. That's what he did. And that's how we got here. And so it is incumbent upon us as a church to build families and also build communities of families for our own sake in the coming decades that are going to come. And for the sake of our children. Because if we don't get our children, if God doesn't get our children, the devil will get our children. And they will win them over. And so, as a church, I guess that's our mission. That's the mission of every church throughout the Western world and everywhere else that God has people, is to build good, godly Christian homes and not to destroy them or pull them down. And men have roles to play and women have roles to play. We have traits, traits designed for that role. It's like when God made us, He made men and He made women, He gave them roles and then He gave them traits specific to carry out those roles. That's how deep down the design goes. Right down to our bodies and our biologies is specifically designed for these roles that He intended for us. That's how deep the design goes. And so we pray um, for godly homes, for godly children, and for us to live up to what God designed and purpose for us as men and women. Amen. As men and women, we are to live before God and to worship Him and to obey Him. Because His commandments are not just things He tells you to do. They're descriptions of reality. Mm -hmm. This is how things are. 
And this is how, and this is the most important thing, this is how you maximize human flourishing. See, God is into making human beings flourish. We have this idea that God is this mean God who spoils our fun when he tells us to do all these things. No, no, no. When God tells you to live a certain way, it's because he knows in accordance to his design that this is how you're going to flourish the most. This is how you're going to be the most happy. This is how you're going to have more joy. This is how you're going to be more fulfilled and satisfied in life, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally if you live this way. Because it's in the business of human flourishing. This is why Christ came. Heaven is human flourishing. So we need to understand that to live the the way God wants us to live is the best and happiest and joyful and most self-fulfilling way that you can possibly live for you and for your children, for your children's children for I don't know how many generations. That's what we need to understand. And so when the devil through media comes with his tricks, and we compare him to the Word of God, know that the devil is in the opposite agenda. To destroy human flourishing. To destroy your well-being as a human. That's what he's into. And so whatever he's going to give you through the media or academia is for the, for the purpose specifically of destroying your well-being and flourishing and self-fulfillment and all of that. He's on the opposite agenda of God. So, Christ became man to give us the life that we were intended to live. Became a man specifically for that purpose, to save us and give us the life that he intended for us to live as human beings. He is the perfect human, and we are to live as he lived. And all of the things that we, uh, that we do and say. So, I will finish with that. I got no more. But always remember, if you get anything out of this, it's whatever God tells you is because he knows that's the best. Yes. He's not spoiling your fun. Mm-hmm. He's fulfilling you and wants you to flourish as a human being. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that you are good, as the song says, that you're a good father. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who became human for our sake, Lord, to die in our place, to bring us to you. That is your gospel, Lord, that he became man and died and buried and was resurrected and he was ascended into heaven, bringing flesh and humanity with you all the way up to, with him all the way up to heaven, Lord, that we can be with you. He opened up a way to be um, for us to get to God by faith, Lord. And we pray that you may help us to live the life you want us to live, obeying your words and your commandments, that we may be able to be fruitful, Lord, and bring you glory in all things that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.